Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. And I do appreciate your prayers, but just so that, that you know, um, my heart rate at rest continues to decrease. Um, I was called this past Saturday, yesterday, in fact, to um, have the opportunity to speak on the theology of worship, the, the uh, discipleship of the worship minister to a convention of worship ministers within our state. And I didn't think that I was going to be able to, to do it. And to be honest with you, I, I had contemplated um, begging off that assignment, uh, except that I, I made that commitment before, um, well, before what had happened happened. And I'll spare you the details. I've had a Murphy's Law type of month. But God has sustained me through it. And this yesterday was a blessed time. And it was so encouraging to see so many uh, young people from the state coming up in the ranks and being trained not only as disciples, but as disciplers. And I heard these wonderful, encouraging words about how it's not about us when we come to, when we come to sing, when we come to praise, no matter what style that we adopt for our congregations. It's not about the performance, except for the fact that we are all the performers and our sole audience is one, God Himself. It's not about us. It's all about Him. And to hear such a mature thought come from people so young is encouraging. It means that for a lot of us, we're on the right path. We're starting to think like disciples. We're starting to develop hearts of humility before God. Hearts that don't say, I want this my way, at church, but I want things to be God's way. And as we gather together over the, the next few weeks to kind of um, determine how outreach and inreach will be crafted here, we need to do so fully in God's wisdom. So I ask in your prayer times, on top of your ministers, on top of your um, the people on your personal prayer list and upon our prayer list here is the family of Christ. I ask that you would pray for the spirit of this church, that through God's guidance, His will would be made done through us, and that His will for us will be the overriding factor, and that His love for us will sustain us. People don't like change. People don't like change. It's part of our nature to think of change with suspicion, to think of change sometimes with apathy, to think of change sometimes with hostility. I remember once as a choir director myself, um, back in my heathen Methodist days, the doxology is one of the things that I absolutely love to conduct. It is such, both because it's so spiritually rich and because it's so passionate. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, praise him all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
An echo of what we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 6. When all of creation kneels before the throne of the universe, and they proclaim with one voice, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come, the God of eternity Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I remember by my fourth year of, of conducting the same piece of music, starting to get a little stale. But then I look back at the congregation, and I see a lady in her mid-80s singing to the top of her lungs, tears streaming down her face with her hands held out like this. In a Methodist church! I didn't know the story at the time, but she had been a part of that church since she was a little girl. And her family had uprooted to take a business venture and later on, apparently, a missionary journey in South Africa. And she hadn't heard her home church sing in so long. And this was her first Sunday back. And it was when she heard those words, when she heard that song sung by her home church that she finally knew that she was back in her family, that she was home. By going to God and asking Him to help us find new ways of doing the same mission, it doesn't mean we have to give up everything that we are. The message never changes. The love of God never changes. The God we serve never changes. For He tells us in the Scriptures, I am the same today as I was yesterday and will be forevermore. The heritage on whose shoulders we stand has wonderfully provided us examples and resources to be a force for real good in a community that now desperately needs us. New challenges have emerged from house to house, from family to family. At no time in our history have we been surrounded by so many broken homes? At no time before in our history do we have quite so many children being raised by aunts, uncles, single parents, and grandparents because one or more of their actual parents are no longer in the picture. What a marvelous opportunity to do ministry. We have a, cho a choice where we can sit back and we can deplore the condition of the community in which we're in right now, or we can choose to love them. We can choose to be symbols of the agape love that God has for them. One of the things that we're going to talk about in our scripture passage this morning as we continue to look at, at Jesus' journey through the Gospel of Luke is this radical idea of a love that transforms lives. And the question is, with the people that we have, with the giftedness that God has blessed us with, with the strength that He has empowered us with, and with the wisdom that He has and is communicating to us through all of you, how do we accomplish that for which we have been sent? How do we as a family come together, reason together, Bring all of our resources to the table like we would a Baptist potluck. 
Each of us has one single dish that we always like to contribute. Is that not so? I know of this church that there will never come a day that we'll have a potluck where everybody accidentally brings broccoli casserole. Because everybody has a dish that they bring to the table. And everyone has always had that dish that only they can make. Like there's a pineapple cobbler that somebody makes, a pineapple casserole that's absolutely out of this world. And, 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 and some home fried fried chicken that is part of the... I'll just say I've eaten a little too much of it perhaps, but it's just incredibly good. We all have something that we make and we make well that we can bring to the table. God, in a similar fashion, has blessed us with abilities, with gifts, with wisdom, and with experience that we all bring to the table that is the house of God. And we need to sit together and to reason together what is our giftedness, what is our willingness, what is the tithe of time that we can commit without burning ourselves out, but we can still make a difference. Take out your copy of God's Word with me now and turn to the Gospel according to St. Luke. Chapter 6, Luke's Gospel, Chapter 6, and in this passage today, we're going to continue to dive into what is called the Sermon on the Plain. Now, to go ahead and, and to reset up the stage for us, as Jesus has been traveling from Nazareth down to Jerusalem, People have heard his teaching. People have seen his miracles proving his teaching. People have heard about this great rabbi who explains the scriptures with such clarity and love and wisdom. But they've also seen the miracles of healing, of mercy, of the genuine goodness of God. themselves have been defeated where the enemy himself has been brought to light and cast out. And news is spread far and wide so that we think of 12, 12 disciples, but really and truthfully, he has a throng of hundreds and thousands following after him, hearing his every word, and trying to get a space for prayer for himself. He goes up to the mountaintop. Before the sermon that we're about to hear, he goes up to the mountaintop to pray, and he spends all night in prayer. And after that night of prayer, after that night of devotion to God, he comes back down from the mountain and of the people of the hundreds that have been following him, he chooses 12 to name apostles. And here in Luke chapter 6, we have what is effectively their ordination sermon. As Jesus, in the same way that we as pastors have deacons, Jesus is now calling those who are going to go forth and serve in his name with his teaching. And he's establishing the rules of that ministry. They're radical in comparison to the normal person's way of thinking. They're radical in comparison to the way they have been taught in his day. I want you to hear these words. If you'll join with me in verse 27. And again, he has these 12 that he has called in front of him. But the rest of his disciples, the rest of his followers are standing around also hearing. To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, in this era, the Pharisees were notorious for proclaiming, and there's examples of this in the Gospels too, where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they try to trick Him by asking, okay, who is my neighbor? All the while thinking when they're teaching, they're teaching that my neighbor, the, the, the person that Moses is talking of loving, is actually my brother or sister Jew. The person who I agree with, who looks like me, who talks like me, who is blessed by God in their own eyes like me, who is part of the family, who is part of the kingdom. That's the neighbor in their, their eyes. That's who they've been teaching about. Not the person who is also created in the image of God. Especially not the Samaritan who they considered as subhuman. So Jesus is bringing a clarity of thought from the heart of God to these people that they were without exposure to before this very moment. I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. This was radical. In so many of the other religions across this world, there is an echo of, the, of, of the gold, what we call the golden rule, but there is one very important challenge to it. The Buddhist version, the Shinto version, I believe the Cherokee version as well, basically say, withhold your wrath from those. Withhold your wrath from the others. Do not bring harm upon others, in other words. Jesus shifts that to say, don't just withhold something. Don't just decline to repay evil for evil. Don't just be passive, but be active. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love the other person as you would have them love you. Change the attitude of the person that you're with. If they're your enemy, if they're your, your political rival, whoever they are, love them. Pray for them. Do blessing stuff upon them. If they try to harm you, answer evil with good. Answer hatred with love. Stop the pattern. Break the pattern of sin. The only antidote to sin is the agape love of God that He gives us to reflect to everyone else. And when we fail to do that, we increase the likelihood of tragedy. How many of us today stand hurt by a church that didn't heed these rules? How many times have we been in visitation or have we talked to other people with exposure to churches who claim that they will never again go to a church or declare themselves not necessarily to be an atheist so much as a God-hater because those who claimed His name answered good with evil or evil with evil, made a showcase of unrighteousness in God's name. Bless those who curse you. 
If someone hits you on the cheek, turn the other one. Love your enemies and do unto others as you would have them do unto you actively. As the Apostle James would also write, if anyone knows what to do and does it not, to that person it is reckoned as sin. If you know the good... I think I misquoted that. Let me back up just a second. Um, for, those who know the, for those who know to do good and yet do it not, to that person it is reckoned as sin. If you know the good that you need to do and you, you don't do it, then guess how God thinks of it? We say of, of things that we actively do that are wrong, that's a sin of commission. This is a sin of omission. Not being active in a relationship is ungodly. God wants love to be a verb. God wants the love that He grants you to be echoed by your actions, by your conduct, your conversation, and your character to the very people that you are called to reach out to. How do you view someone who was in active addiction who comes to you looking for the love of God? who is earnestly trying to break the cycle. How many of you know of families that have broke, been broken apart because of someone who has done a heinous act, but who is contrite, who wants to make it right? We have an option. When the Apostle Paul talks about love, he mentions that if I have all these marvelous gifts of the Spirit, if I can prophesy the stars down, if I can preach with ultimate passion, if I, it, I'll spare you the, the entire length of the story, but it's a beautiful one you, in, in 1 Corinthians, I believe. If I can do all these wonderful, miraculous things, if I can show miracles and signs and wonders, and yet I do nothing out of love, it is all in vain. But love itself is the key. Love conquers all. The agape love of God, that self-sacrificial love, not just infatuation, not just good feelings about somebody, the self-sacrificial love that is described in the word agape, the true, pure form of love that puts the other before the self, conquers all as the cross itself demonstrates. What Jesus is basically telling the disciples around him is, I want you to be the way that God would have you to be. I want you to be reflections of God. This is how Paul himself kind of summarizes or comments on what Jesus was teaching. In Romans chapter 5, he writes, You see, at just the right time, when we were still yet powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates, God proves his own love for us in this. While we were still yet sinners, Christ did what? Christ died for us. 
This was the evidence of God's love, the purity of his love, the unbridled passion of his love. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, and I want you to underline that in your copy of God's word, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The same life that we are called to live in imitation of him. So a new commandment I give you, this is what Jesus says. In his commission to you as his disciples. Our weapon is the love he gives to us. The weapon of the enemy is harsh words. The weapon of the enemy is apathy. The, we the weapons of the empathy are hatred, our violence, our anger, our bitterness, our backbiting, our slander, our gossip, our lies, deceit, hostility. The weapon that we are armed by God with is love. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so you are also to love one another. With this promise, by this they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. What makes the Christian different of all religions, of all faiths, of all peoples, is the degree of agape love that we demonstrate. Love believes all things, accept all, accepts all things, cherishes all things. Love conquers all. This is how they will know. This is how the people of St. Albans will know. This is how the people of West Virginia will know. This is how the people all across the world will know that you are mine. Simply by the fact that you demonstrate a real, true, genuine love. A love that says, just as we were the enemies of God while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, just as we were without hope, without life, without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, just as we were without anything except our debts before a holy God, God loved us. While we were His enemy, He loved us, and He proved it by the death of His Son. And that's what Christ is saying in this sermon. Just as God reconciled you to himself, you are to be an ambassador of God by being agents of reconciliation. The third commandment is not about vocabulary. The third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, has nothing to do with your choices of words. It's about your ambassadorship. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a minister of Christ, if you claim to be a member of a local church, if you claim any responsibility that involves the ministry whatsoever, if you even so much as wear a cross around your neck, you are going in the name of God. And how you take that name in as his ambassador, as his servant, as a priesthood of all believers, as you take his name before others, you do one of two things. You bless his name by being the living sacrifice that he called you to be, for you are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
All things, whether in word or deed, do as unto the Lord. So when you go in His name, you either bless His name by your conduct, your conversation, or your character, or you make void, meaningless His name by not being renewed in your mind, but by conforming to everything else around you. We are called to be different. And the radical difference that makes a Christian a Christian is love. They will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And as a church, love is wholly necessary. We call each other brother and sister for a reason, and it's not because it's an antiquated, old-fashioned type of thing. It's because it's the truth. If you stand today as a recipient of God's grace, you are either a prince of this universe under Christ or you're a princess of this universe under Christ. You are, in fact, my brother and sister, not maybe by our last name, but by His blood. We should have the same relationship as a community of faith as we do with our own families at home, if not a little stronger, because we have not just our genetics binding us together, we have the Holy Spirit of God binding us together. This place is not just a house where we meet in safety to go over religious exercises one to two days a week. This is a place where the family comes home. This is a place where we have a reunion once a week to twice a week, depending upon how well we're discipling ourselves. This is where we put love to the test by loving each other. Love, kind of like a, a lubrication in an engine, is what keeps us functional. Because what happens if you're driving a car down the street and you discover that your oil pan's been leaking and it's all gone? The cylinders lock up and your engine explodes. A church that doesn't love its people is a church that explodes. It's by forgiving one another embracing one another. It's only through the love that God gives us that we can function as a church, that we can minister as a church. But let's go on. What God provides for us to ensure that that happens is a heart at peace. Please write this down at your notes. Two conditions of the way that we view other people. First is a heart at war. This is the non saved, the non-regenerate way of doing things. This is in-the-box thinking. For any of you that have read, uh, well, in-the-box thinking does not mean conventional thinking in this sense. In-the-box thinking means that you have a heart at war whereby you think of everybody else as your enemy. So people stop being people. People start being problems to be solved. People start being issues to be managed. People start being job functions. People start being uh, cogs in the machine. People start being ways to make money or to do something for me. This is in the box thinking. This is a heart at war. This is where I believe that I'm the only one of value and I have to strategize against everybody else. Turning the other person into an object, an obstacle. A heart at peace, on the other hand, is the heart of the regenerate. A heart at peace is only available to us because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that transforms our hearts from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. 
A heart at peace sees the other person that I'm in a relationship with as being made in the image of God. Someone to be cherished, someone to be adored, someone to be loved, someone to be nurtured, my brother or sister in Christ. And just as I was once the enemy of God, when I was still yet in my trespasses and sin, just as we all were before we came to the cross, God loved His enemy. So He asks us to do the same. To have that heart at peace, knowing that God will sort it all out as long as we are obedient to His call in our lives. Even if the other person has a heart at war that I'm dealing with, God, through the indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit, it might not in that instant, but He will take charge of that relationship. Jesus goes on to say, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to them? Even the sinners do that. And if you lend to those who, with whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything in return, including thanks. Then your reward will be great, and you will be the children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. In other words, be holy just as I am holy. Just as He is holy. This is what He asks us to do. Be a Christian, which means Christ-like. Because in the love that you demonstrate, you prove the resurrection of Christ. You prove the power of His transforming presence because He is living out His ministry in you. But love is a choice. Agapeo, from the word which we derive agape, is a verb. It is a choice. We can choose to rely on the Holy Spirit, having faith in God. We can choose to love one another, just as Christ has loved us. We can choose to see the other person, even though they're an unbeliever, even though they're a sinner, even though they have fallen in the worst of times because of their own doing, perhaps, even those that don't look like us, those that don't sound like us, those that don't act like us, we can love that other person knowing that nevertheless they are made in God's image and they're a potential brother and sister in Christ and that how you treat them is the testimony that they're going to remember about whether salvation makes or doesn't make a difference. And it's that love that creates a spark of conviction in their hearts that will ultimately draw them to the saving knowledge of Christ. You are the only Bible that some people will ever read. How good is your translation? Love is a choice. Reflect it well. And know this. Aggression will only and for always, by unsaved, or by the Christian that doesn't make this choice, Aggression will always be answered by aggression. 
Condemnation will always be answered by condemnation. It will be echoed. Hatred will only beget, will only generate more hatred. You do evil to those that do evil to you. All that you're doing is deluding yourself into thinking the matter is solved when in fact you've just created more evil. And it will only get worse. Evil doesn't stop with evil. It snowballs. Vengeance doesn't bring justice. For Jesus, or excuse me, for the voice of God himself says, vengeance is mine. It is not ours. It is not the realm of the Christian. Vengeance, the court of, only, of holy justice, is only up to God. Our part is to calm the situation, to help bring a sense of Christ's justice and love and mercy to the scene. Now, this doesn't mean that we stop being discerning for the sake of self-protection, but it does mean when a situation gets volatile, you have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to calm it down. The same way that a reaction rob stops a nuclear reaction from going into meltdown. Mercy will encourage more mercy. Giving, being generous, will also foster more giving. Pardon will lead to pardon. Love engenders more love. So how do we minister to a world that is now hateful of the church? How do we minister to a society that believes that we're no longer of value? The answer is we prove them wrong. We live out our testimony. Not, we, we, we are ready to give an account of the hope that is within us, but we also demonstrate it. Jesus continues, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. This is misinterpreted and misapplied. I'm going to get into that in just a second. But do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We are not called to have a judgmental and condemning attitude of our fellow man. We can't do that. Jesus will go on to say, don't help your friend out with the speck of dust in his eye when you've got a, a plank, a beam, a log in your own. But do be discerning. Do not put yourself in harm's way or in danger. But do not enter into a relationship with a sense of condemnation, a sense of superiority. How do we judge as Christians? How do we discern someone's heart as Christians? We do so humbly, knowing that there for the grace of God go, I. For there is none righteous, no not, one. For all have sinned and call short of the glory of God. We know this to be true. Before God, we're at a level playing field, except for the fact of the redemptive blood of Christ, and that's the only difference. Something that you didn't earn, but something that is given freely and can be accepted by the other person as well. So we're to, to discern humbly. We're also to discern prayerfully. Make sure that you take advantage of your relationship with God and calling upon His wisdom and how you deal with others, how we deal with others. 
We do so biblically, and that requires devotion, that requires study, that requires knowledge. Knowledge that is given to us and anchored into us. Given to us through the Bible, anchored by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it requires devotion. We do so lovingly because He first loved us. Love thine enemies. We do so mercifully because He had mercy on us while we were also in His place. From the very cross, He cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In His image, we reflect. We do so privately if we have an issue with somebody else, especially if it's a fellow believer. We take them hand in hand and we go together and we try to reason together. As Matthew chapter 8 tells us, we go to that person in private and we reason together in Christian love. We do so gently in all humbleness of spirit, without raised voices, without arguments. We do so constructively. Never seek to tear the other person down. Never seek to tear the other person down. The person that you're talking to, always remember, is made in God's image. And if an unbeliever at that moment is a potential child of the King based on your actions, the challenge that the Scripture leaves with us today, the challenge that Christ Himself left with the people He just named apostles, is this. Whatever you do, do so with the same attitude that was in Christ. Love each other. In all things, choose to love. And all God's people said. So Heavenly Father, this is a difficult teaching. This is a difficult moment for us where we have to consider the times that we did not love our neighbors as, our, as we would like to be loved. Where we did not hear the cry of the needy, when we did not seek the comfort of those who are suffering, when we did not view our brother and sister in Christ as someone who is a fellow child of the King. Lord, forgive us of the many times that we did not choose love. Free us for joyful obedience where we may with all earnestness, reflexively, view everyone around us the same way that you view them. As a person of eternal significance, a person of divine worth, a person who you made in your very image, who we are called to love, Help us to do so generously. Help us to be the instrument of reconciliation that brings others to you before it is everlastingly too late. And now as we enter into the service of invitation, Lord, as we open this time of prayer and song to those hearts gathered before us, Lord, if there are any here who have come to know you in a free pardon of sin, if there are any who have yet to feel that touch of your love, or if those who the call of day-to-day -day living have, have lost a sense of the peace and the joy that you grant them, for those who now see only the problems and not the one who is the solution, for those that just need a special time of prayer with you, draw them down the aisle, draw them to the altar,
Draw them to the place where they can feel your embrace. Be with us now. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.